Hey there, and welcome to Radio Free Bay Ridge. I'm Dan, and hey, you're you're not Rachel. Uh, not that I'm aware. <laughs> yeah, so Rachel is a little busy with electoral politics lately, so joining me as co-host today is senior correspondent Eric Schell, who you may remember from our episode on getting Bay Ridge a new school. Awesome to be here, Dan. Rachel will be joining a little later on to take part in one of our interviews and dig into community board history. But we have a big episode planned today, so I think we might need to skip the news and just jump right into it. All All right, let's do it. So, Eric, to start off, I have three questions for you. First, can you guess what today's episode is? Well, yeah, because we've talked about it a lot. We've mentioned in the past few episodes and we've tweeted about it. And I've barely been able to get you to talk about anything else for a month straight. It's community boards. Yes, at long last. And what's amazing about that is just simply knowing the phrase community board means you're in a small minority of informed constituents. About 30% of residents, according to one study, are even aware of their existence. Maybe only 10 or 15% according to another. And these stats are from back in the 80s when community boards had a lot more power and influence. I don't know if people realize, but we're millennials. Everything we do is nostalgic for the 80s, even the stats. And I will defend that stat, too, as old as it is, because as far as I can tell, no surveys have ever been done on community board awareness since. The fact that nobody seemed to ask if people care about community boards in the last 20 or 30 years kind of indicates that those awareness rates might have dipped since then. So second question, Eric, what is our community board here in Bay Ridge? 10? Brooklyn 10, I think. Yes. Being able to name your community board puts you among the 6% of residents who can identify their community board. That's roughly the same percent of people who are vegan in the United States. Not sure why you know that, but okay. Vegetarian checking in over here. Yeah, the community board for Bay Ridge and Diker Heights is Brooklyn CB10. Each borough starts its own number scheme from scratch, so you got to add Brooklyn in there. Do not apply for Manhattan 10 or Bronx 10 unless you have a vested interest in making the trek out to City Island. I don't blame you. Good seafood, though. Seriously, Dan, I feel like I am nailing this quiz. What's the final question? What does a community board do? It um, it yells at city agencies. Close. But don't worry. Only 3% of people have a grasp on what community boards do. And that's why we're doing this episode. Exactly. I'm pretty sure by the end we'll all be in some weird point zero 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 one percent category. I am insulted, insulted, Daniel, that you'd call me a member of the 1%. I don't know, Eric. Since you are a registered independent, I gotta say, applying for the community board is actually one of the few party agnostic ways of getting into local politics and city government and repping the 99%. Hey, I'm no longer disenfranchised. And applications are due February 15th for anyone who's interested. It's up on the Brooklyn Borough President's website. The whole thing is electronic. I'll be. And definitely tweet to us at Radio Free BR if you have applied. And we want to know how many people are signing up. But before we make that big an ask... Maybe we should know what's involved. Good point. And to answer that, Rachel and I sat down earlier with Joanne Seminara, a longtime Brooklyn community board member, to get an overview of community boards and why they need us. 
So we're joined by John Seminara, fixture of Community Board 10 and Bay Ridge in general. Thank you for stopping by, Joanne. Never been called a fixture before. (laughs) You go really far back in Bay Ridge. The Bay Ridge Forum, Alliance for Block Associations, Bay Ridge Coalition for Peace back in the 1980s. If anyone's enjoyed the 69th Street Pier lately, (laughs) you might want to thank Joanne a little bit for helping to fight against uh, waste transfer sites. Thank you, Joanne. You're welcome. I guess our first question is, when did you first get involved in Community Board 10? I never remember the number of years, but I think about 25 years. So it was in the 90s, um, maybe 95. I was had worked with Sal Albanese, who was our former councilman. I worked with him on a number of his campaigns, and hmm. I was generally meeting with him on a semi-regular basis to talk about community issues. And he asked me if I was interested in being appointed to the community board. Hmm. And I was. So I didn't really know what it was about, and I didn't really know anyone on it either. I just showed up, and I think for maybe the first year, I listened. I just listened, mm-hmm. uh, which is what I tend to do when I don't know anything and try to figure out what's going on. And I had to learn about outdoor cafe permits, zoning rules and regulations, which I didn't know anything about. I didn't even know they existed, quite frankly, and I'm an attorney. I hadn't done any of that kind of work. Applications for liquor licenses for local bars, learn about transportation changes in the community, bus routes. There was the legendary effort to make Fifth Avenue one way. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, my. (laughs) Everything from speed bumps to traffic lights to ramps off the Verrazano Bridge and different changes. It's very nitty gritty in terms of the details. So what does like an average community board meeting, how how does it go down, a general meeting? It's very formulaic. So the agenda is pretty standard, and I think it's somewhat regulated by the law. It's an open meeting. Under the New York State Open Meetings Law, every single meeting we have is open. All our committee meetings, people should be welcome to come, to listen, to participate, to speak. It's an open mic for the first, you know, several minutes. It's open. We're about 50 members. Each board Mm -hmm. is uh, up to 50 members. So it starts with the open part of the meeting, the public session. And you sign up for that typically in some type of orderly way. Everybody gets two or three minutes to say whatever they want to say. You name it. It doesn't even have to be relevant to Bay Ridge or the city. It could Mm -hmm. be a national issue. It could be anything, announcement, whatever you have to say. It could even be political. I mean, and then there are different reports. So the district manager, who's an employee of the community board, now it's Josephine Beckman, Mm -hmm. who was my district manager and I was chair and whom I I have a great deal of respect for, Mm -hmm. will give a, a district manager's report. There'll be a treasurer's report. There'll be a a chair's report about what's happened in the last month, usually in terms of things happening, sewer repairs, collapses. Last month, we discussed the Christmas light parade through Mm. Diker Heights is becoming very problematic for the residents there. And then there'll be committee reports. So every committee that has had an issue during that month that is met will give a committee report of what they discussed what they recommend if there was a quorum, what they are presenting to the board for discussion and then vote. We decide things by majority vote of the board, not by committee. The committee Mm -hmm. is generally the place where the issue really gets teased apart, discussed and researched. So the larger board of 50 are members of different committees. So what are some examples of some of the committees that community boards have? So the chair appoints members of the committee, hopefully the committee that they want to be on. So there's (laughs) a zoning and land use committee, which tends to be one of the more prominent committees. Mm Because we're actually changing what's getting built here. There's police and public safety Hmm. committee. There's a senior issues committee because we have Mm -hmm. a very high concentration of seniors, which is near and dear to my heart because I'm an elder law attorney. Um, 
We have an environmental committee. We have traffic and transportation committee. Mm-hmm. I think we have a communications committee. Then we have an executive committee that nominates people for officership. And um, then we can create ad hoc committees. Mm-hmm. So if there's a specific issue that we don't have a standing committee for, we can uh, create ad hoc committees. So it's nice and flexible, too. Yeah. What most people don't know is that committee membership is not limited to board members. You can actually ask to be notified of every committee meeting and come to any or all committee meetings. They're open and we can actually have members of the community on our committees. That is well, awesome. Like if anyone's listening and they don't know if they want to like commit all the way or if someone applies and, and they don't get it this year, yeah, you know, yeah. just show up to committees that you're interested in. Exactly. And find out what's what the topics are and, and research them and bring information. Kind of off on a tangent, but what did you bring from your activism onto the community board? I'm often a dissenting voice for one reason <laughs> or another. More than anything, I brought a sense of inclusiveness, like mm. in terms of wanting to include voices that were not being heard. I also want the board to be seen as not a closed clique. And for many years, it was very, very political. Mm. It was antagonism between different factions on the board. Marty Golden was a council member. And he would appoint his people. It's the borough president that has the authority to name people to the community board. Half of those members are chosen with the, I think it's called the advice and consent of the city council member. Mm -hmm. So for all intents and purposes, the borough president chooses half and the council member chooses half. So you can be either appointee. (laughs) It doesn't really matter. And and then you fill out an application. The application's online on the community board website. You typically have to say what your interest is. Do you live here? Do you have a business here? Do you have another particular interest? Because I think it says you have to have a significant interest in the community. Um, You need references. You need to write down all your previous activities and memberships. And it's somewhat political, I think. Um, It has been. Not overly. I think it's always a nice idea to meet with the borough president's office or the city council member's office to introduce yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> and to say, these are the issues I'm interested in. Where are the community board meetings usually held? The, the general meetings, if people wanted to like get an idea before they jumped in. So there aren't that many sites that fit us all mm-hmm. and that have handicap accessibility. So we don't have that many venues to use in the evening. It must be challenging to find space for 50 people. I didn't I didn't realize that yeah. it was that Plus. big of a group. Yeah. And, and Plus the and the people who come, yeah. So I'd say at least 50 other people come. The elected officials come. If it's a very hot issue, we can get 200 people. We've met at St. Anselm's. When we've had a huge number of people. We've met, um, they're held at Shore Hill. Um, there's a big community room as part of that housing development. Mm-hmm. We also meet at Norwegian Christian Home, which yep. is on 67th between 12th and 13th. We've met at the Parks Department facility underneath the entrance to the bridge. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. On Fort Hamilton and 90. It's a senior center. Yeah, Parks yeah. Department. Right near the um, Army base. Yes. And if we could find more places to have it that were accessible, I think we'd even move it more. If it's an issue that's very local, mm-hmm. we try to meet at a venue that's close to the issue. So we met right. when there mm. was the, the discussion about the off-ramp um, into Bay Ridge coming off the Verrazano Bridge, oh. 79th and, and 6th, which is always backed up. We yeah. met at McKinley Intermediate School, which is yeah. two blocks from there. So people who live right there could be at the meeting because it affects yeah. them. And our meetings are always posted on the website. They're typically two to three hours. Yeah. So you have to kind of invest a little bit of time, but it seems like the general is monthly and maybe the committees meet always once a month. Except in the summer. 
many committees meet regularly. So police and public safety meets regularly because there's always an application for a liquor license or mm. a police activity issue. Zoning and land use committee, which I enjoy, is usually monthly because there always are applications for issues that we want to discuss. Like zoning and land use, you can expect to meet once a month for two and a half hours on an evening, which usually start at yeah. seven. So you might not get home till nine, nine thirty. Mm. And we're in the thick of it. We're we're looking yeah. at plans, having discussions about community goals and trends. One of the things I enjoy the most is being at those meetings and just kind of collaborating <laughs> with um with each other and yeah. people who know what they're talking about with a sense of history of the community. It's a big commitment to mm-hmm. be on the board. It's a huge commitment to be an officer of the board and really take the job seriously and to chair a committee if you really want to take it seriously. And I know that zoning and land use is one of the reasons for community boards existing. Um, So what are some of the big land use things that have come before Community Board 10 in the time that you've been there? That's a good question. I just want to describe what I'm talking about. Land use is how we use the physical land within our community district, what we allow to be built there, how dense it is, how high it can be, how far the commercial zone, which is on third and fifth and 86th street mm-hmm. how far we allow that to encroach into the residential area mm. issues of placement of facilities so the use issues bulk issues height issues people asking to enlarge things and sometimes they need a variance mm-hmm. because they want to build more than the zoning allows for on their lot and then there are very large developments that affect very many people not mm-hmm. just next door neighbors and one block and some of those have been very significant there was a discussion regarding a developer's request to build over the airspace on 60th and 61st streets between, I think, 10th and maybe 12th avenues. It was yeah. going to be a huge shopping mall with major anchor stores built over the cut for the subway. So it was yeah. called Bay Ridge Air Rights. And there was a lot of controversy about whether that belonged there, whether it should be there, whether the congestion was just going to mm-hmm. choke off the community. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we rejected it. There was very big money behind it, as you might imagine. Oh, yeah. Very big plans. The developer came to us very informally to get our temperature about it. Environmental engineers, traffic engineers, this is a very big financial commitment for someone even to present something like that. Some of the very contentious issues of yesteryear back, oh, it's probably almost 20 years ago. On 69th Street between Shore and Narrows, Mm -hmm. there used to be Delmonico's restaurant. I think there was a gas station there too. And there was a plan to put in a theater there with the UA theater, and it was going to be a multiplex. Many of us um, opposed that because of the density and the use in that little sleepy corner. The zoning um, and land use issues are one of the few mandated things that we have a voice in as set forth in the city charter. Mm-hmm. Typically just recommendations. We don't have the teeth to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Right. We can choose mm-hmm. not to, but they have to send it to us for our remarks. Right, right. What kind of backgrounds do the people that you work with on the community board tend to have? It makes a big difference mm-hmm. if you have people who are related to these issues on the board. Mm-hmm. We've been very fortunate that we have an architect on our board, Ann Falutico. She was the chair for several years and mm-hmm. she was on my committee as well when I was chair. I'm an attorney. I actually have done some land use work as an attorney over the years had Steve Harrison, who's very, very knowledgeable about the history of the board and the zoning. It's important to have homeowners. It's important to have tenants. It's important to have business owners. As a community, we have to coexist together, so we mm-hmm. need to hear a multitude of voices. So the community board is 50 people, volunteer. So what kind of support do you get from the city? I know that we have Josephine Beckman. That's, that's yeah. full-time staff. We have two full-time staff members and usually one or two part-time staff members. And okay. we have interns doing public policy or city planning. 
once in a while. We have some high school students who help us during the summer. <laughs> we have plenty for them to do. We have a budget, so we have a personnel and budget committee. So we talk about personnel and, and salaries and how much money we have and can we afford to do this and hold, mm-hmm. you know, have someone part-time. And So it's like a mini business. It's an agency, yeah. and we run it. We have a great space now. We had a very, very substandard space for many, many years until we got the Fifth Mm. Avenue space. You know, depending on how the board is composed, we often don't have the information that maybe the city has. We don't have an engineer, for example. Mm -hmm. It's research. And, you know, some people have argued that we should have a budget for hiring our own expert. So that if we need a third party independent opinion, just someone with more time, if you will, Mm -hmm. ability to do research. And a lot of us just put in time. We just yeah. we put in time writing. We put in time editing. It's really a labor of love for many of us. I enjoy it. I enjoy the zoning discussions. I loved chairing the board. I thought it was really fun. We're very fortunate that we had students who were studying urban planning and city planning come to us to be fellows. Mm. Oh, wow. There was a fellowship program that we applied for, and we got the money to hire the fellow to do a major zoning study about what's coming down the pike. We see a lot more commercial construction especially in the Chinatown area. And we're just looking at the feasibility of the land to cope with some of the changes that we see coming. And it's very important to take the long view and have someone to be able to do those studies and present those studies. So when we look at a large project, Mm-hmm. We know how it fits in with what else is happening. We're not just guessing and taking anecdotes. It all comes down to budget, right? We only right. have yeah. a certain amount of money to spend. There was a move to eliminate community boards a few years yeah. back. Typically, many, many years, our budget has been threatened in mm-hmm. the budget negotiations of the city council. And then we, we lobby, we fight back. What's what's kind of exciting, what sometimes happens, you kind of assume the discussion's going one way or everybody's kind of against bike lanes or something, which they were, then all of a sudden people start to speak and people really start to listen. Mm -hmm. And then something changes as people start listening to the experiences of of people whom Mm -hmm. they might not have heard. Mm-hmm. And then the spirit of the room changes and people start to reconsider. It means that people are listening to each other, which is, I think, our best hope of what it should be. We shouldn't yeah. go in there with preconceived ideas about what should happen just because it's been this way. Yeah, Life is changing. We have to accept those changes. And the community is free to come with its issues mm. and recommend that we take up an issue. It's our board. It's all yeah. of our board. It doesn't belong to me or to the city council or to the borough president. It belongs to the people who have an interest in this community. And they should speak and make it what they want it to be. And even a volunteer to be on committees, even if they're not on the board. I think that's a great place to leave it. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's really great. Thank you so much. fantastic to get that kind of insight. Thank you. So, Rachel, having spoken with Joanne. It seems like the community boards are set up in kind of an interesting way. It's basically a result of a series of half measures and charter revisions that have left their mark on the boards but were never fully realized. Mm. Generally, community boards are a remnant of a style of city governance that was really popular in the 60s and 70s but isn't in vogue anymore. Kind of like disco dancing and white disco dancing suits. It was the decentralization movement, alternatively known as the community empowerment movement. I like that one better. We need to start actually in the 1950s when the City Planning Commission recommended that the city split itself up into 66 districts. Okay, so we're back to poodle skirts, not bell bottoms. Yes. Okay. This was something that the Citizens Union a few years earlier in 1947 decided was a really good idea. It was considered a more efficient 
way of acknowledging the different needs of different communities, especially for coordinating city services. The splitting of the city into 66 districts would help, quoting the City Planning Commission memorandum, in the, quote, planning of schools, housing, hospitals, libraries, playgrounds, local street systems, and other public facilities, as well as for the consideration of land use and zoning patterns, which we just heard from Joanne. Yeah, it's interesting because of that kind of late 40s, early 50s, that's around the time there was new activism coming up. There were some new theories on urban planning, if I recall correctly. Yes, Jane Jacobs is uh-huh. starting up around this era. Our, our um, friend Jane. So this kind of starts in Manhattan, and it doesn't start smoothly. Nothing ever starts smoothly. No, the city has a history of bad planning, actually. <laughs> um, it's pretty ironic. The City Planning Commission is itself a good example of bad planning. <laughs> the city instituted zoning laws in 1916, but it wasn't mm-hmm. until 1936, 20 years later, that they finally got around to setting up a permanent planning commission. That sounds like somebody was late with their homework. Yeah, and you can tell community boards aren't going to have a clear history if even our planning board can't plan out its own history properly. (laughs) So Manhattan ends up getting the first stab at a proto-community board system when Mayor Wagner at the time, um, he takes Manhattan's share of those 66 districts and says each one of Manhattan's districts, 12 total, is going to have a permanent community planning board attached to them. And those community planning boards are going to do what exactly? Um, not much. <laughs> they had almost no codified responsibilities whatsoever. Their power, it stemmed from the person who appointed each of the board's 19 or so members. Oh, so they were way smaller back then. Yeah. And since the community districts were totally out of line with the council person districts, and Manhattan was the only area that they were doing this in, Mm -hmm. they set up the Manhattan Borough President for making all of the appointments, and any overlapping councilmen, senators, and whatnot would serve as extra board members ex officio. They would just kind of walk in. That's kind of like today how people like can come in, like Joanne was saying, and just be there for something, say a representative of Marty Goldens who walks in and stands around. Right. But this was still all just in Manhattan. Exactly. And all the other borough presidents, they wanted in on this community planning board setup. And why wouldn't they? So with a 1961 charter revision, the community planning boards went from a Manhattan-wide experiment to a city-wide establishment thing. And the borough presidents back then were not just the figureheads that they appear to be today. Am I correct? Yes, they weren't just boosterish. They <laughs> right. weren't just there Cheerleaders to like... for their district. They constituted the majority of the Board of Estimate. <laughs> The Board of Estimate sounds like the Ministry of Magic. <laughs> it was it's a very like dusty term. It's um old school nomenclature for accounting because basically they managed all the administrative functions in the city and controlled all of the money. So they roughly estimated what things would cost and then spent more money than that. Because the borough presidents had the input there, they actually were able to like pull the rug out from under the mayor if they wanted exactly. to. Exactly. They right. had a ton of budgetary power to control the purse strings. Right. And not just the mayor, they could pull the rug out from city council because right. Today, the city council controls budget stuff. Back then, they just controlled legislative stuff. So the borough presidents having a kind of plurality of votes on the board of estimate really could run a lot of stuff. I swear, we have such a Byzantine city government structure, and it's like everything I learned about it tells me more of why. (laughs) Oh, and it's going to get weirder. So you know how I mentioned there was a 20-year gap between the zoning laws and the establishment of the planning commission? Wait, let me guess. The board of estimate was in charge, and the borough presidents did whatever they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, nice. through a small offshoot 
of the Board of Estimate called the Board of Standards and Appeals, another dusky term. (laughs) It's no mistake that in the early 20th century, when the borough presidents had the most power, you saw a ton of development and change in the boroughs. At that point, it seems like, you know, you've got the borough president and they're appointing the community board and the community board is telling the community, like, this is what we're going to do. And this is when it's happening. And this is how we're doing it. To quote Robert Pecarella, who wrote a book almost entirely on this, the community planning boards, quote, did not serve as grassroots organizations in any meaningful sense. Weren't we on the verge of the 1960s? Yeah. And didn't people get super active in the 1960s? Oh, yeah. Because after Wagner comes the Republican JFK of New York politics, the charming and idealistic to a fault lightning rod of controversy. John Lindsay. Civil rights protests are happening across the country. School desegregation and school busing controversies are flaring up. Brownsville, activism, Vietnam War rallies are everywhere. And the financial crisis is looming just on the horizon. Add in the union strikes and it sounds just like 2018. Yep. (laughs) So basically, Lindsay's motto was for New York to be the fun city. But starting on his first day in office... The transit workers union strikes and shuts down all of the subways and buses. Fun! And then the sanitation strike, a crippling blizzard. Police corruption gets exposed more widely than ever before. If you've ever seen the movie Serpico, this is the time. So basically, another big labor strike is the United Federation of Teachers, which was really pissed off because Mayor Lindsay really took this whole community empowerment thing to heart. How dare he? He decided to move the school system from central city control to a bunch of smaller school boards, kind of like the community planning districts. Mm -hmm. And the UFT said, oh, hell no, we are not negotiating with 33 separate boards with 33 separate contracts. That's union busting and we are on strike. Yeah, okay, no, that... Good call. Good call, unions. Yeah. Really, Lindsay wasn't entirely out for community empowerment. He was also trying to break up the local democratic machines that still existed out in the Mm. boroughs. He was kind of like a Manhattan centralist. The weird New York City version of a federalist. (laughs) Yeah. Lindsay was deciding that to restore public trust in city services and to break up those political machines, he'd need to champion what he called little city halls across the city and even set up an office of neighborhood government, the ONG. School boards were part of that, but so were community planning boards, getting back to community planning Mm -hmm. boards. He wanted to empower them as representations of City Hall, but on a local scale, to combat the idea of some faraway big government stepping on your toes. You know, that sounds an awful lot like they were very close to hashtag mayor of Diker Heights. (laughs) I know a couple guys who might like to apply. Basically, though, for the first time, Lindsay actually writes a couple of rules for what these community planning boards are supposed to do because they're... Because who needs rules? Nobody needed rules before that. Not the borough presidents. Hell to the no. (laughs) This was the mayor kind of throwing the pendulum back and saying, all right, like for the first time, how to actually fire a community board member or what constitutes being removed for cause like excessive absences. That wasn't spelled out before that? Nope. And don't get too excited. Change happens slowly. Community planning boards were still the borough president's domain. Sure, there were rules on how board members should act now, but they still had no real job responsibilities, no role in city government. Actually, forget mayor of Diker Heights. This is starting to sound like the presidency. But let's move forward now to the mid-60s. Lindsay manages to win a re-election, riding on a wave of black and Latino votes. 
In fact, two years before that election, on hearing of Martin Luther King's assassination moments earlier, he famously walked the streets of Harlem without an escort and spoke mm. with the crowds. I don't know if you saw this clip of Justin Trudeau talking to a protest rep in Canada, and this is so not yeah. local, but the idea of elected officials going and looking people in the eye and saying, I understand, you know, I'm hearing you, I understand what you're saying, I empathize with you. That's not really a Republican thing anymore, is it? No, it really isn't. Um, Actually, Lindsay was famously gigantically tall. Uh, hmm. Now that's de Blasio. Um, <laughs> there are a yeah. lot of weird echoes of Lindsay and de Blasio. Yeah. But anyway, Lindsay goes off on a failed presidential bid. Oh my God, de Blasio. Anyway. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> but his dream of office of neighborhood government, it mm -hmm. pretty much lived on. A Gallup poll in the mid 60s revealed that 80% of residents favored decentralization as a way of reforming government, especially since the city council and the board of estimate were seen as really unresponsive. Again, sounds a lot like today. Well, and as everybody knows, the way to fix an unresponsive city government is to build in more city government. They wanted yeah. like local communities to have a say. And some of the criticism against Lindsay trying to do this for the school boards was, how do you give an impoverished area like Brownsville or something and just say, no, you do the work to build mm. your own education district? Right. That was right. the criticism. He was doing this also for the local community boards. Right. He was saying, do this on your own. Balancing the grassroots thing with like actually giving people the tools that they need to accomplish city governance. <laughs> yeah. So what they really needed now was a little bit more guidance from the government on mm -hmm. what this was supposed to do. So by the time the city charter is up for another rewrite, mm -hmm. the State Charter Revision Commission recommended, quote, that the people of New York City should have a stronger, more direct say in the operations of government, particularly in their own communities. And then what happened? 1975, charter is rewritten, and the old community planning boards are now called, drumroll, <laughs> community boards. 59 wait, of them. Wait. They were community planning boards before this. <gasps> oh, to completely different. Totally, totally different, different thing. They dropped okay. planning, and we are actually now talking about community boards. Okay. And a lot of the stuff that we see today is kind of from that 1975 charter revision. There are 59 community boards, which is what we have today. And to slightly dial down the borough president's influence, the borough presidents were forced to select half of the 50 members from a list submitted by the local city councillors. Hmm. Still not great. Good step forward. It would also be the last step forward in regards to depoliticizing the community board, sadly. Having the city council person appoint people and the borough president appoint people was meant to take the political side down a notch. Yeah. And that's where it ended. That's an, that's an interesting way of involving the community council people in the process. Well, you also have to understand at this point, the city council people were kind of the weakest in city government. So it was intended as, okay, we can't have the mayor check the borough president. So let's mm -hmm. have the city council people check the borough presidents. And they were thinking that this would mm. all be balanced out. Right. But they weren't that much of a check on the borough presidents because they still didn't really have involvement in budgeting, at least not as heavily. Um, and sadly, this was also undercut because the new mayor, Abe Beam, a kind of old political party boss, the, right. the, the accountant from Brooklyn, he really didn't dig this whole community empowerment thing. There was a fiscal crisis hitting the city. Is this a headline like Ford to City drop dead? Yes, the bad old days. Mm, hair's breadth away from bankruptcy. No one knew what the country's biggest urban area was going to look like if it went bankrupt. 
doesn't seem like the time to start throwing money out to, you know, all of these dozens of different little tiny organizations that maybe aren't quite ready for prime time. Yeah. So advocates wanted way more than the 62 that they originally had. They wanted one for each individual neighborhood. No lumping together different constituencies. No gerrymanders. Which, I mean, that sounds kind of reasonable. We talked about how there's a lot that's different about Bay Ridge from Diker Heights, from Bath Beach, from, you know, Park Slope, from yeah chelsea real advocacy like you really get to have a lot of say like one vote really matters when it's just that one area but opponents said we need way fewer than 62 maybe like 30 Mm -hmm. so that each board really has power and clout in city government and so that each of them can have more funding and staffing as the city was pinging every penny so it's almost like the proportion of like a house member to a senator yeah they were debating this and so mayor beam no friend of the idea of decentralization in any way, he cuts the baby in half so nobody is happy. 59 districts, not enough for some, way too few for others. And that's what we have today. Exactly. So African-Americans in Crown Heights are pissed off because they have to share with the Orthodox community. There are really public airings of grievances at this time because no one can really figure out how to get these boards to be representative while still being influential. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the debate they had on whether the board member should be elected or appointed at all. Some said that appointed is better because it'll let poor people who can't afford to run for minor office Mm -hmm. represent their neighborhood. So they do stick with that. They also up the number of people on each community board to 50. Mm-hmm. And remember, it still requires borough president appointment. Oh, cool. So if I'm poor and I'm working 12 hours a day, I just need to get into politicians' good graces while I'm doing my job and supporting a family and beating out any other wealthier neighboring constituencies I was lumped in with. And then how much do I get paid for all of that? Zero dollars. Zero dollars. Yep. So this is where that kind of reimbursement comes in. It's not a great incentive given the amount of time a disenfranchised person would have to donate. Right. But it's not all horrible. They did actually add a ton of actual stuff for the board to do. What stuff does the board do? Are you sure you don't want to hear more yes, stats? About- I'm sure. I'm sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to hear about Lulu's? No. Okay. <laughs> no, so, tell me what they do. <laughs> community board do three main things. One, they decide the zoning exceptions and land use issues, which is what we heard about with Joanne, hearkening back to the original intent of these boards in the 50s when they were called community planning boards. Right. So that's where the community board kind of says yes or no. Right. Um, well, actually, that's not entirely true. I'm sorry, but I have to bring up the board of estimate again. They still. See, every time you say, every time you say that, I'm imagining these like. 18th century gentlemen with like their little monocles and their top hats. Oh, it's totally that. But at least at this point in the 70s, the board of estimates still around. Okay, with sideburns and disco pants. (laughs) 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 Hope you're all loving that mental image. So the board of estimate and the community boards both share the same power source, though, the Mm -hmm. borough presidents. So the community boards do have influence. Its recommendations actually carry weight. Two, the community boards decide budget priorities for their communities. So like more, more money for potholes, maybe some money for a new school, throw a big check at a hyperlocal political podcast. Yes. I like these days. I like what I'm hearing now. <laughs> exactly. In September and October, they need to coordinate and meet and decide on their priorities for city service needs and come up with a list that at the year's end kickstarts the entire city budget process for the next fiscal year. Phew. 
Again, the role of the borough presidents helps here, too. Mm -hmm. And finally, three, the community boards are there to coordinate the provisioning of city services and get feedback from the community about the quality of those city services. So they talk to like transit and sanitation and education and environmental protection and who knows what else. And then with the board of estimates controlling the budget, the agencies are like, hey, the community boards are here for us. Yeah, they have to kind of listen to what the community boards have to say, because if I'm an officer from sanitation and I'm meeting up with the community board, I know that, okay, 50 of these people are all appointed by the borough president and they control my agency's budget. I better listen to them. Ooh, that's some serious. That sounds like some conflict of interest stuff going on there. Well, yeah, but it also means that they really did have teeth. They had right. rec- they were recommending, but they were like secret like, backroom. I'm recommending thing. that you do this, and by the way, I sign your paycheck. Exactly, or at right. least my boss does, right, and right. he chose me. So there is some kind of implicit deal where the city agencies should listen. Mm -hmm. And these are the responsibilities in the 70s. They added real funding at that point to a full-time staff for the community boards and the district managers show up. Which, like Joanne was talking about. Exactly. So actually, fun side note, the district manager was originally the head of something that looked a lot like a president's cabinet. Hmm. Each city agency had to send an official to serve on the district manager's council. They'd all coordinate local distribution of services. And that's something the community boards still do today, but they have to call agencies in. There's no cabinet. There's no officially assigned representative from each agency that's assigned to the community board. Okay, so I know I've like, you know, kind of joked about this as a crazy structure a couple of times now, but but actually this this part of it does actually sound kind of cool and like it why is it not like that originally this was the idea behind mayor Lindsay's little city halls to do this stuff the city council hated it for much of his term most of the furniture for these little city halls they were stacked up in a room what? unused in what? the basement of the tweed courthouse what, what? There, wait there was they had furniture yeah they had them all funded and and they just kept trying to institute them and no one would let them. The big reason for that That's hilarious. It was taking all the credit away from the local political right. machines for providing city services. Right. And right. a small part of it, though, was to work effectively, the city needed to push an idea called co-termination, which never really came to fruition. And is nothing like co-location of schools, which we had described in no, our last thing. No. Co-termination means that a city agency needs to organize the way that they deliver services to co-terminate or basically line up with community board districts. Mm. The sanitation district 10 would also be the boundary of community board 10. The same with police precincts, school districts, all of it. The map would look the same. Right. But like we said earlier, there's a really weird number of districts. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that most of the agencies were like... Nope. Not at all. We are not reorganizing to these weird boundaries. We are certainly not staffing up in the middle of a financial crisis, fresh off of numerous strikes, to send individual officers to serve at the pleasure of district managers. And besides, it's going to take 20 years to implement any of these changes anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And that's if they had budget power, because Mm -hmm. 1989 rolls around, shit gets weirder. Because it was the 80s. Why wouldn't it get weirder? (sighs) The Board of Estimate, you know? The guys in wigs, yeah. the source of the borough president's control, mm-hmm. ruled unconstitutional. What? Totally unconstitutional. Wait, stripped- after how many years? After, oh, you know, about 100 years. <laughs> so 
totally unconstitutional. They strip all the power from the Board of Estimate and thus the borough presidents. And those are the borough presidents we have today, the right. PR boosters. Right. And thus the community boards. Got they it. give the budget powers to the city council instead, which is mm-hmm. why we talk about Justin Brennan and not Josephine Beckman, our community board district manager. I thought we talked about Justin Brennan because he was a hardcore musician who's kind of badass. Maybe Josephine Beckman is too. We don't know that. Well, because we never talk about her. And that's because of 1989. Without budget clout, the agencies that are showing up to the community board are even less likely to care about what they have to say because they only ever had an advisory role. And it still gets weirder. Weird me up. Let's go. Because not only is their budget power cut down, not only is their agency influence cut down, so is their core reason for existing. Because their influence on land use and zoning, they killed the Board of Estimate, but they kept the Board of Standards and Appeals. Which was the board that could overturn things they were the board that for the 20 years that we had planning but no planning council they were the ones that oversaw the zoning they did not get rid of them (gasps) they got rid of one ancient relic of municipal weirdness and kept another ben kalos of manhattan's fifth district he calls Mm. the standards and appeals board the most powerful city agency that no one has ever heard of Mm -hmm. if the community boards are a relic of the community empowerment movement in the 50s 60s and 70s Standards and appeals remain a relic of the the turn-of-the-century reform era that decided to fight against the political machine tomfoolery with faceless, insurmountable, centralized bureaucracy. Because if there's one thing that kills shenanigans, it's paperwork. Yes. So the planning department, it zones the city, Mm -hmm. and standards and appeals provide the variances. The community board and the borough president, meanwhile, do the ULERP stuff. Basically, it gets triggered any time a project is big enough to affect city property somehow. But for small zoning issues that don't trigger a ULERP, that's still mainly controlled by the 100-year-old Board of Standards and Appeals. All right, so let's say I have a building and I want to put extra floors on the building. Who do I go to? Standards and Appeals. Boom. So if you want to open a garden supply store that doesn't fit precise zoning language... Standards and Appeals. You're a mega developer dropping down an all-glass 10-story monstrosity on the confluence of 4th and 5th. Standards and Appeals. How do you influence Standards and Appeals? I open up a giant bag, I put a ton of money in it, and hand it to them. That always works in city government, (laughs) but... This is a 1916 agency. There is no chance it cares about neighborhood character or aesthetics. It is based on one simple rule. It grants zoning variances... If it is needed for the property owner to achieve, quote, a reasonable economic return on their property. And no, the developer isn't even required to actually look up the zoning before they purchase the property. That isn't, quote, a self-induced hardship. Wait, so I can like go out and like say I see a house on the corner. I'm like, I want to build a multiplex there. And I buy it, and then I'm like, oh, wait, that house on the corner was actually not zoned for multiplexes. So I can run off to this board of standards and appeal and say, I bought it and I wanted to do this, but I didn't really look or do any due diligence before I did it. And now it's going to be really expensive if I want to do it. So can I just like, can you just, just wave that? Just wave that. Going from residential to commercial will probably get shot down, but you can definitely hear something of like a developer going, "Mm, I didn't know I needed to put a handicapped spot there. It's going to be so expensive. Wait, this sounds like the MTA. This is where we need to ask. If the community board's biggest role is to block unfair land use, then why is it pretty much a paper tiger? Because Mm. this bluster instead of bite, it applies to a ton of issues that the community board faces. We heard that 
earlier from Joanne. Mm-hmm. Something as minor as liquor licenses, noise complaints. The community board often drags problematic bar owners into protracted arguments about decibel levels and one too many bar fights. Mm-hmm. Really, it's the state liquor board that has the final say. I mean, there are lots of systemic structural problems with community boards. And having gone through all this history, I hope our listeners realize there are reasons for some of this dysfunction. And it isn't just a case of all local government is silly or pompous or reactionary. At the same time, there are ways that we can help improve a community board's effectiveness. And that has to do with one of the most time-consuming Sisyphean tasks that community boards undertake which is collecting our complaints and comments. We need to complain better. I'm sorry, Dan, I have to step in there. I think we are excellent complainers here in Bay Ridge. We are the best complainers. We are very stable, genius complainers. We have the best complaints. Yes, (laughs) all the best people making the best complaints. Well, I actually don't think that's the case, sadly. Um, (laughs) We have to complain with so much more awareness of who we're complaining to and what we're complaining about. Bayridge, we must complain with focus and intention. And I will give you a couple of examples about how we're kind of falling down on the job there. I spoke with my friend Vinny, who's been the guy on the other end of the phone when you complain about political issues. Fun. He's held a whole series of jobs where he's had to field calls and complaints from us, including for a local political office that shall remain unnamed. He gives a great overview of the most common interaction that our elected officials and public servants have with us. And I gotta say, we do not look great. All right, so we're joined in the studio by Vinny. Thank you for having me, Dan. I've worked in political offices on all levels except presidential. I've worked for Democrats. I've worked for Republicans. I canvassed. I've worked in the offices, dealt with their complaints. I've been doing this for a while. I still do it not as much as I used to. One of the things is there's a misconception of what type of calls we get. Like a lot of people think it's politics related, like legislative. Honestly, that is probably none of it. It's more general life issues. Say for every hundred calls we got, there were 90 that were like nonsense. At the most extreme end, I remember I had one guy asking for numbers of local pizzerias instead of looking in the phone book, going online or going, <laughs> you know, calling 411 and spaying the quarter. He decided to call us and find out local pizzerias. Did you give him any recommendations? No, I was just like, you're just wasting my time. What are the bulk of those 90% that can't all be pizza calls? No, the bulk of the 90% would be stuff that 311 would handle. People have this idea in their head that if you call the elected official's office, you're going to get the fast line. Most of our calls were about tree pruning, sidewalk repair, usually because these giant trees that should have never been planted rip up the sidewalk. 90% of the calls with stuff like that, or people ratting on their neighbors, thinking that they're building something illegal, or parking in driveway. And there was no way of verifying any of that. For the most part, like you could tell, like when someone's just like hissed at their neighbor, because it's never just one complaint. All right, so your neighbor parks in your driveway, plays loud music, and does this. Like, honestly, like a lot of times we would just call 311 then ourselves, get them the reference number for the complaint. So if that's 90% of the incoming calls. What's the other 10%? Those are people that legitimately have a problem and might not know where to go. Yeah. I like to break that down. 80% of those people were people that had problems because they let it get that bad and ignored the problem. A lot of people who work in these offices do babysit them. 
and mm. they'll keep going through the process with them over and over again. I guess like some officials might like that because it, they become the lifeline for certain constituents, but it's not the majority of people. Like no. how, So out of 100 calls, eight of them are that. Yeah. And what are the other 20% out of the, the 10? Those are like people with actual problems and that they're usually very grateful for you helping them. Mm -hmm. Like those are the people, they come back later, they bring you a tray of cookies. We talked earlier about community boards and how at the beginning, usually like every single local elected official in that community board would go out and have a representative. Did you ever have to do anything like that? Yeah, all the time, a couple of times a week. And it's not just community boards. I mean, then you have what are basically the civic organizations. The civic organization has no power, no advisory, but you still go there because oftentimes the same people from the community boards. Working there, you'll go and you'll just be like, "Hey, I'm from whatever office." Politician says, "Hi, he can't be here today because he doesn't want to be there." (laughs) Hey, we have these events coming up, or if like they brought up something in the previous meeting, like this is where we stand. What is it like having to do that multiple times a week? (laughs) I mean, you just get used to it after a while. It's just it's always the same thing over and over again. Like all these organizations, so just kind of like molds into one. The same issues just always come up and up and they always contradict themselves to the point where you're just like whatever you do it you're going to wind up being wrong i mean the two biggest things i always remembered was cell phone towers and double parking outside of schools cell phone towers that's a private matter between landlord and the cell phone company if they yeah. want to at one meeting they would complain there's no cell phone reception and then two months later they'd be complaining they're putting a cell phone tower up we need to stop this and they're hiring lawyers to like stop this tower going up like the other big one that was like the type of thing that I would dread was the uh, parking at schools. You would go there one month and there'd be 10 parents fuming. I got tickets for double parking. I'm trying to pick up my kids at school. How dare NYPD give me these tickets? And you, you know, you'll have a NYPD representative there. And usually they'll like, we can allow for momentary yeah. double parking. Then two months later, everyone's double parked in front of the school. I can't get down the block. <laughs> This is bullshit. My kids are breathing in fumes. You should circle the block until you're picking up your kids. Then they'll argue what constitutes momentary parking. Who says it's 30 seconds? Who says it's two minutes? Who says five minutes? Who says 10 minutes? How do you deal with appeasing a group that has contradictory information within its own core issues like you just be very very vague we're working on it we'll take on the advisement we'll look into it never give a concrete answer never take a side if it's something normal that they're (laughs) requesting yes it will go through but like a lot of this stuff they argue over you'll just be sitting there like okay do you normally stay through the whole thing Uh, i well you're supposed to i mean i i will admit i snuck out many a time after just giving my little (laughs) spiel just seeing what was on the agenda and then it's like all right you do get people they come up to the meetings fighting with their neighbor parking things that they really can't do they want a personal solution Uh, and i'll say one more thing great resource to get the green book not the one online get the actual printed one because okay. that has all the internal numbers in there you <laughs> could call the commissioner if you wanted make sure you get the official green book Vinny, thanks so much for coming on man thank you for having me dan okay dan uh so i'm a transplant to bay ridge and that was the first time i actually really got a taste of the accent though that was amazing <laughs> But seriously, based on what Vinny said, I'm kind of embarrassed if this is how we come off to our community boards and local politicians. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I understand the jaded transactional nature of constituent services, but yeah, bringing it back to community boards, especially our own, they often rely on the comments they get from constituents. They use the stats of people who call in and reference them as representative of the neighborhood. And if all they get are complaints, not comments or suggestions... Yeah, let's be clear, without the funding to really spread awareness of itself, those complaints are probably coming from a small minority of constituents. I'm guessing homeowners and local special interests who are aware of the community board. Right. Like we mentioned at the top of the episode, very few people are aware of the community board or its role. And that's not even getting into the privilege of that. Do you really think that 2% of the people calling in with real problems to Vinny's office were tenants getting evicted by their landlord or new residents, immigrants, 20-year-olds dealing with tuition assistance? Community board awareness seems really tied to nativism, to be honest. Yeah, and that's what makes Joanne's call for engagement so important. Like we pointed out in our history segment, the board is structured in many ways to be disenfranchising, despite its own best efforts to overcome that. So if at this point you've already determined that joining a community board or attending a committee probably isn't something you have time for... You can still make a major difference by putting them on speed dial. Exactly. So many activists take their time to call up their local elected officials, but you know what? There's an entire body of dedicated people, our community board, that often gets left out of that loop. They're being fed complaints about cell phone towers and double parking because so often people only look them up when they have a problem. They could really use more comments and suggestions, let them know who you are, what you care about, things like that. Yeah, and that alone can help fix one major systemic problem the community boards face, which hampers their ability to properly represent us. Right, and community boards aren't just a Brandon. They don't get tagged in Facebook posts every time that something happens. And maybe they should. They really want this data, as a matter of fact. At the last meeting, um, Josephine Beckman, the district manager, was really pushing hard for a customized local community board-centric 311 data analysis application so that they could streamline their data collection from other city agencies. Yeah, if you're a part of an activist group, consider writing up a report and sending it along to them on a regular basis. Let them know what you're doing, what's happening. Maybe send a representative to a public speaking session, you know, stuff like that. All right. Yeah. And yeah, joining up with the public sessions, that's really cool because a lot of community board folks are members of other civic groups and agencies themselves like Joanne. And as Vinny said, a lot of board members head up other local civic groups. I can imagine it'd be easy for them to not be aware of other groups that don't fall into their community board orbit. Which can unfairly color their perspective on the neighborhood. Exactly. And be unaware of the efforts being undertaken by other groups. Actually, this kind of brings us to another thing which I think we need to focus on, which is helping the board become more holistic and proactive. Yeah, they originally were the community planning boards, after all. Like, I bet it can be hard being an ad hoc, generally unpaid group of volunteers listening to all these one-off land use proposals. And it's just like, bam, 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 the individual proposal after individual proposal. Yeah, and if you don't have a coherent planned vision of what you want your neighborhood to be, you fall back to defending the neighborhood for what it is already. Yeah, conservatism starts where imagination ends. We'd solve a lot of nimbyism and a perception of being against everything. If we could just be more proactive planning to our community boards and tie them together with our activism 
and layer that into the board itself. Speaking of someone who's a bit tired of that sort of thing, you spoke with Brian Hedden, who heads up our local transportation alternatives chapter that focuses on better public and alternate transit in the neighborhood. Yeah, and he's been watching our community board from the point of view of someone who has a real vision for what this neighborhood should look like, and he's been trying to get that vision realized. Hi, Brian. Thanks for coming in. Hello. Thank you. So I've been going to community board meetings for a few years. I had a two-year stretch back in 2012, 2013, when I was going to the community board 10 meetings here in Bay Ridge. Hmm. I was doing that for one of the blogs that I'd been working with at the time. After that, I had stopped going for a while, and I picked it up again the past few months primarily through my work through transportation alternatives and volunteering with the local South Brooklyn committee here. Just for some background, Transalt has local volunteer committees throughout the city. They've got a Manhattan committee. They've got a Brooklyn committee that focuses more on central Brooklyn. Uh, They've got a Queens committee, Eastern Queens committee that's had some decent success as of late. And they've got a Staten Island committee. The reason that the South Brooklyn committee came into existence was to push the idea of having a bike and pedestrian path over the Verrazano Bridge. As a result of that, I've been going to a number of the meetings, not just here in Bay Ridge, but also in Sunset Park for Community Board 7, also in Bensonhurst uh, Community Board 11. I've dug in a little bit trying to get a sense for how long people have been a part of the board. Every year, there's supposed to be half of the membership is up for reappointment, 25 out of 50 people. And a lot of times you really only see maybe two or three new people appointed to the board. This past May was a bit of an aberration when you saw eight new people that were appointed. I'd say it's more common to see about two or three because if a person's already on the community board, all they really have to do is just reapply. And almost every single time they're reappointed by the borough president. Why do you have to dig into how long people have been serving? Isn't that public information? It would be public, but it's not necessarily easy to get at. So just by looking up the information that is available online, and primarily the minutes that are posted onto the community board site, you can get an idea for the board members that have been there that have been appointed since 2009 is how far back their minutes go. They'll have the attendance list, who's there, who's absent, who's been excused. So from that, mm. you can gather who is on the community board in 2009 and cross-reference it against a list of who's on the community board now. <laughs> so that's what we mean by public is kind of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy level of public. In triplicate buried in soft peat, exactly. Uh, but I do think it's important to remember that there certainly are cultural differences across generations. So I think the boomers and the uh, the, the silence are in some ways very cultural culturally different from the people who are in uh, the Generation X or the people who are millennials. And when you have a uh, a board structure that incentivizes reappointing the same members time and time again, and you have a board that starts to skew towards those uh, older generations, you end up with a body that isn't necessarily representative of uh, the new parts of the culture that are coming up through the newer generations. Is there a record of attendance for the community board? Going by the minutes on a month-to-month basis, I'd say there's usually about 30 to 35 board members in attendance at any one meeting. You'll have a number of people that have called ahead and said, I'm not going to be able to make it, mm-hmm. and they go on the attendance sheet as excused. And then you just have people who blow it off and they go on the attendance sheet as absent. You don't usually see the same people who are excused or absent over and over again. You do see it sometimes out of a few people, 
they're usually the people that will stay on the board for two years or four years. Maybe they don't reapply. Maybe they were told not to reapply. It's weird that it's so gate-kept. Have you heard anyone getting axed from a community board for political reasons? Uh, absolutely. So I'd say the most famous case in recent memory would be one of the community boards that had a say over the Atlantic Yards development back when they oh, was yeah. in the very, very early stages. And they were still, you know, they hadn't built anything or anything like that. And there were a few members of that community board who had gone against the preferred position of Marty Markowitz, who mm. was the borough president at the time. And he was a very big cheerleader for that project. Yeah, some board members went against Markowitz's position. And when their terms came up for reappointment, coincidentally, they didn't get reappointed. And as we've talked about before, it's very rare for a person who wants to be reappointed to not have that happen. So... That was definitely a function of some political retribution. What's your likelihood of getting in if you apply? I can think of three people off the top of my head that have applied. One person had to apply twice in consecutive years. That person is now a member of the community board. One of the other people applied and was rejected. There's a third person. This person comes from the arts community in Bay Ridge. This is exactly the sort of person that I would think we would want to have more of. And the person told me that they've applied several times over the years mm. and it's been rejected every single time. That's a really slow rate for properly keeping up with issues in the district, keeping up with age, keeping up with demographics, keeping up with anything. It's almost even worse than it sounds. So you think about the fact that eight people were appointed this past May. You don't really know the tenure of the people that they were replacing. It could have been someone who has been on the community board for 20 years. It could have been someone who was only there for two or four years. Yeah, none of that is public or at least accessible. We don't know how many people apply even, so we don't know what the rejection rate actually is. With a new city council person in, maybe we can gauge how willing Justin is to push through some of his more progressive promises from the campaign in how this community board is laid out for the coming year. There's really no way of knowing until you start to see that first round or second round of appointments. So moving a bit away from process, how does the board stack up when it comes to your expertise, transit safety? Primarily people who are on the transportation committee are experts in their own personal experience of how they use transit. You know, from one standpoint, that is exactly the sort of voice that you're trying to get on a community board is just people's own personal experiences to have a little yeah. bit of flavor to career engineers, civil bureaucrats that exist in the different agencies that a community board interacts with for transportation. That would be DOT and MTA. At the same time, some recurring concepts do call for a little bit of expertise a lot of the data does come in from the agencies that presented them. But sometimes when people's feelings are completely contrary to the facts on the ground, it becomes a bit of a problem. Thinking about in terms of what I've seen on the transportation committee, they try to provide some feedback, some alternatives to usually the DOT. Lately with the MTA, they've been talking about putting in this elevator at the 86th Street station. Yeah. And the community board has been opposed to the way that the MTA has gone about it. They're opposed to the exact location. And they've offered some feedback in trying to get the MTA to modify their plan. They're not really trying to stop an elevator in a Bay Ridge subway station. Okay, so if we see like a bunch of nays on like meeting minutes for like an elevator, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't want the elevator. They're against the way that it's being proposed or like the specific proposal. Right. DOT comes in, they make a proposal. The board will challenge them on some of the facts that the DOT has presented. 
why do you think this? How do you know this is right? This data seems stale. This data doesn't seem like it could possibly be right. The DOT will answer those questions. They'll explain why they have confidence in the data. The board will continue to not believe in it. So I believe that there certainly is uh, a certain amount of frustration on the part of the agencies that come in to present to the community board in terms of having the jobs that they're supposed to be expert at, that they've been working on their entire careers to have their day jobs called into question by board members. One of the problems with a large deliberative body of non-experts that are unpaid that might be there for a long time, very little public transparency on how they got there, treated poorly by municipal agencies and whose real powers are limited, uh, they focus on one thing and they hold on to that for dear life and they just wait till they can be appeased. No, I would say that's, that, that's not an incorrect assessment <laughs> at all. It seems weird because the community board could just ask the DOT or the MTA for more data and get an answer as to why or why not, rather than making a lot of prejudgments. People on the board definitely take their role very seriously, and they do it as best as they can. But to your point, there is a lack of expertise in some of the uh, functions that they're serving here. The, uh, the chair people of each committee will write up a report that summarizes the committee meeting, and they will present that to the general board, and yeah. that will be incorporated into the, the larger minutes. There is a lot of leeway for the chairperson to add their own color, their own uh, personal opinion into those reports. I, I remember um, reading a transportation committee report a few years ago that made sure that they took a, a little swipe at transportation alternatives and made sure to describe them as an anti-car organization. At the time that I read that, I felt as though that was an unnecessary dig. These days, yeah, obviously we are. I know municipal agencies can kind of do whatever they want. The DOT can do whatever it wants. They just choose to defer to the community boards uh, a great deal of the time. If a DOT member comes in and gets blasted, they just won't do a project? They just won't do a project. That's and pretty much how it works. They'll come back next year and just try it again? They probably won't. They will not come back the following year, that's for certain. If it's a project that you believe in, the best you can hope for is that they'll come back in a few years. So you have community board members that might be staying for upwards of 10, 15, 20 years, and then you have city agencies, and they might only be coming in every four to six years to refloat an idea. So if there's something that really would benefit the community, it might take upwards of 10, 15, 20 years for something important to get done. There's a key element that supporters of projects have to keep in mind, and that's they have to have a means of showing city agencies, you know, DOT or anyone else, that there is a constituency for supporting projects outside of the community board. There's also the issues that we were talking about before. I think if you feel as though that you're in a group, you're an individual or an institution that is underrepresented on the board... I feel as though that you should absolutely feel empowered to reach out to whatever agency that you need to petition an agency. You can petition the council member or the borough president directly. Now, of course, the flip side, one of the risks that you run is that you anger the community board and they shut down the proposal and their voice carries more weight with the DOT than anyone else's. And then you've just basically made what should have been an important ally mad and they're not going to help you. I'll add that with Community Board 11, it's very much different than the other two that I've seen. And CB 11, that's Gravesend, Bensonhurst, and parts of Bath Beach. 
It is not a deliberative body at all. You have a chairperson, the CEO of HeartShare. Then you have the district manager who's had that position for a few years now. And the two of them decide how the board should react to the issues that come before them for a rubber stamp vote. If you go through the minutes of Community Board 11 that are posted online, you see a ridiculous amount of votes that were passed unanimously. Basically, a 50-person rubber stamp is what it comes down to. Whoa. At least in CB10, there's occasionally abstentions and... Yeah, I, I will I will give CB10 a lot of credit for the fact that they are a very deliberative body. They do take the idea of debating issues very seriously. Even contentious issues, usually they find a way to have them out in a relatively calm, civilized way. I'll be honest. I think the committee meetings are more interesting to go to as a resident because you actually have a greater opportunity to speak about issues there. The way that a committee meeting is structured is that whoever is there to make a presentation, they get up, they make their little speech, they talk about what they're there for. The board members will have the opportunity to speak next. They'll talk amongst themselves. I think uh, the priority is for the ones who are on the committee, but if there are other board members there, they'll mm. also have the chance to speak. And then after that, if there's anyone in the public who wants to say anything, they'll have an opportunity to say it then. It's actually the opposite process when you go to a general board meeting. So if you hear something during their debate that you want to say something about, you don't have an opportunity about it. There's something that we haven't had a chance to talk about too much, and that's the issues on which the community board does have a lot of power over versus mm. the ones they really don't have any power over whatsoever. Uh, anything that involves on-premise alcohol sales, new applications, uh, renewals, license permits for things like uh, sidewalk cafes, some of the uh, street festival applications that happen. On oh, yeah. And block parties. Exactly. Obviously, recently I've spent time on the transportation committees. A few years ago, I was spending a little bit more time on the police and public safety committee of Community Board 10. And a lot of what they deal with would be the SLA applications, the state liquor authority. There are some pretty wild differences in the way that they approach the applications depending on whether the applicant or the location has what they would term as an adverse history. So if they've had mm. a lot of complaints about a location, even if it's a new bar, new owners, the assumption, sometimes rightly so, is going to be that it's going to retain a lot of the flavor of the old establishment, particularly the complaints that come along with it. If there's a problematic location, for instance, they can spend an awful lot of time on it. Uh, one of the early reasons I started going to the board meetings was to follow along with this establishment at the foot of 4th Avenue. At the time, it was called Amnesia. Uh, neighbors around this establishment complaining about the noise, complaining about parking, and it just made people all around it you know, rather unhappy. The community board had spent an awful lot of time talking about some of the ways that they could try to rein this in. One of the things that came up was the fact that they were operating as a dance club without a cabaret license. But for the most part, it's only been enforced during, I think, Prohibition and the Giuliani years. Yeah, those are two periods that I can see having something in common. <laughs> so you can talk an awful lot about the cabaret law, but at the end of the day, there was no one that was going to enforce that law with that club. In cases where they've managed to get licenses revoked, it's really only for those most wanted notorious bars because it takes an awful lot of work on their part to be able to do that preparation testimony before the SLA. So the community board does what they can trying to coax the applicants to agree to various stipulations for uh, getting the community board's blessing 
Now, in some way, they're perfectly fine to just disregard what the community board wants, go straight to the SLA, and that would usually work out pretty well for the bar. But sometimes if you just want to get through a process, you want to play nice, you don't want to antagonize your neighbors right from the very start, uh, you will talk about whatever stipulations the community board has and you will agree to them and move on from there. Brian, I guess to wrap up, as an activist and a transalt member, you definitely have a reason to stay on top of the community board's developments, but what about an average progressive? Why should they show up? I don't find that the things that come up before the community board are all-inclusive of the things that happen in Bay Ridge and Decker Heights, but I do find that a lot of things that people find important will come up in some way at those board meetings, particularly as you go to them over time. And I do think it's interesting in order to stay on top of that sort of thing, to be able to see it firsthand as opposed to read about it in one of the papers afterwards. When you start going to the meetings, you don't necessarily have to deal with that filter of having a beat writer or having an editor decide what was important to cover, what was important to write about that month. All right, Brian, that's all the time we have. Thanks so much for swinging by the studio. No problem. Thanks for having me here. So what do you think, Eric? Uh, it seems like we need to do an entire episode on community board reform, to be honest. Now that I'm in the 1%, as much as I hate to say it, who are super aware of the community board and what it does, I want it to be better. And it can, but that relies on consistent engagement and not just complaints or antagonism, but lifting it up to be better. We really didn't touch on it much, but one thing community boards can do is known as a 197A plan, a comprehensive community board-driven planning process that can kickstart major community-driven improvements and constructions in the neighborhood. It's been extremely rare due to all the problems we've touched on and how boards are set up, but it is there as a goal. That'd be amazing. I mean, just one focused plan for, say, freeing up space for schools and senior housing or for addressing affordable housing rather than all these ad hoc projects and proposals and referendums. And Yeah, I mean, exactly. To let our board lead and take charge, it really requires a healthy board to make that work and to see it through. So, yeah, first thing, engage with your board. Apply. Join it if you can. Let Justin Brennan and Eric Adams know who you are. Write a letter. If you do get in and are a member of the community board in a couple of months, continue to follow Joanne's example and speak for others who aren't fortunate enough to have that kind of time or resources to dedicate. And if you do apply, let's help make the process more transparent. Tweet us at Radio Free BR or tell us on Facebook and let's get a count of roughly how many of our listeners are applying and we'll see the appointment rates later on in the year. Yeah, more transparency is good. And speaking of more transparency, they're actually live streaming the next few community board meetings in Bay Ridge, courtesy of a grant spearheaded by former council person Gentilly and set up by PBS. Search for it by entering Brooklyn Community Board 10 into YouTube. Uh, spoiler alert for the most recent one. It was mostly liquor licenses. Yeah, absolutely. A local bar nearly lost its license. Um, and that also shows what Joanne was mentioning earlier and Brian reiterated. It's a deliberative body. There are amazing moments where the mood of the room changes and the board shifts its opinions. It's always swayable. But also the board isn't a gatekeeper. If you want to reach out to local city agencies and petition them directly, get information and then provide information, especially if you're a member of a larger civic or activist group in the neighborhood. And finally, we need to push for more reform and funding for our community boards. They're an amazing resource and a last apparatus of community empowerment that isn't likely to come back if it's allowed to wither or become irrelevant. 
Already, we see developers and others learning to sneak their way around the boards, sometimes with a good reason, since they can be unreasonable at times, and reflect narrow constituencies. But even healthy representative boards are seen as obstacles to be overcome and not reasoned with. So get engaged. Make community boards part of your progressivism. You can view their website at nyc.gov backslash brooklyncb10. That's brooklyncb10. And there are a few community meetings before the February 15th deadline. So if you'd like to show up, all of them are at the Fifth Avenue office between 81st and 82nd Street. Police and Public Safety is meeting at 7 p.m. on Monday, February 5th, discussing three new liquor license applications, including for the newly reopened Polonica restaurant. Bayridge got a drink, Dan. The Traffic and Transportation meeting is a day later, the uh, 7 p.m. on a Tuesday, February 6th, discussing traffic changes for school safety outside of PS69. And the Environmental Committee is meeting the next day, 7 p.m. on Wednesday, February 7th, discussing ideas for an anti-littering campaign amongst school students. School, school, schools. I'm just going to say schools, schools, schools. All about the schools. Uh, and on the deadline day, February 15th, is the illustrious Land Use and Zoning Committee meeting at 7 p.m. on a Thursday, discussing the Streetscape Text Amendment, which focuses on illegal curb cuts, and the efforts to landmark the Angel Guardian home. Shout out to our local journalist, Julianne McShane, for all her hard work reporting on Angel Guardians for the last few months, by the way. And listeners, if there's something in the neighborhood you want to talk about or something relevant to the political landscape of Bay Ridge, let us hear from you. Our email is contact at RadioFreeBayRidge.org and our website is RadioFreeBayRidge.org. Follow us on Twitter at, at RadioFreeBR and you can download the pod on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. And of course, take a moment to leave a review. It helps those sweet, sweet algorithms. Tune in next time as February kicks into gear with a rapid fire series of episodes covering all of our NY11 congressional contenders, the Democratic primary challengers facing off to be the new House congressmen in South Brooklyn and Staten Island. Michael DeSillis is up later on in the week. Until then, stay free, Bay Ridge. Mm-hmm.